This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Faces in the Clouds We here at the Word of the Week, being tabletop fantasy gamers, are prone to flights of fancy. Our minds tend to conjure up all sorts of wonderful and sometimes terrible somethings from nothing. Well, almost nothing. Often we'll find ourselves in some perfectly mundane situation, watching a television commercial for the latest heart attack in a bun being peddled by some terrifying clown or a hamburger monarch, and suddenly we find our imaginations wandering this way and that. And in the end, we come up with a plot for our latest game, which involves a magical cattle blight incited by the evil sorceress court jester at the behest of his king in order to ensure his kingdom's livestock has the market cornered. Something the heroes only learn about after investigating the seemingly innocuous death of a farmer who had the unfortunate luck to witness the jester in his dark ritual and was subsequently poisoned to keep the whole operation secret. Hang on. We gotta go write that down. Pretty good. Anyway, what we're seeing is that we, and gamers in general, are prone to seeing fantastic somethings in mundane nothings. We're always seeing faces in the clouds. Now, that particular idiom, seeing faces in the clouds, is not always complimentary. In fact, it's usually leveled as a criticism. We're all familiar with the fun game of cloud gazing, wherein we look up at the clouds and try to come up with things that the clouds resemble, right? That one looks like a dog. That one looks like a turtle with an elephant on its back. That one looks like a semi-opaque mass of water vapor that is condensed around dust particles or crystals of ice. But to see faces in the clouds implies that you're actually seeing a pattern that isn't there. Because, of course, there are no actual faces in the clouds. But there is a reason that we see faces in the clouds. In fact, it is a psychological phenomenon known as pareidolia. That comes from the Greek. Para, as a prefix, normally means beside or alongside. But in some contexts, like this, it can refer to an incorrect association. Kind of like being nearly correct, getting it almost right. And the root of the word, eidolon, comes from the Greek word for a symbol or image. That's where we get the word idol. Of course, if you're a fan of the Final Fantasy series of games, you might think of Eidolons as spirit monsters that can be summoned by powerful mages to fight their battles for them. And you might associate them with names like Ifrit, and Shiva, and Alexander, and Bahamut. And you wouldn't be too far off. Eidolons actually have a long history in the fantasy genre. In Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition, Eidolons were statues animated by divine spirits to protect holy sites. In Pathfinder, they are similar to their Final Fantasy counterparts, spirits bound to serve mages who specialize in the, well, in the summoning and binding of spirits. But Eidolons go back further than that. One of the cities in the alternate reality known as the Dreamland in H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu-verse was ruled by an Eidolon named Lathi. And even the ancient Greeks used the word to refer not just to concepts and ideas, but also to refer to spirits, ghosts, and phantasms. If we go back to pretty much the first fantasy adventure story in the Western world ever, the Odyssey, even Helen of Troy's ghost was wandering around doing things. In point of fact, the word Eidolon basically just referred to a sort of afterimage of a dead person for a long time. 
It wasn't until 1876 that the definition broadened to refer to the divine spirits of the entire universe and all the people in it. That's pretty specific, right? Well, that's because we can point to the exact poem that turned Eidolons from ghosts into angels. The story starts in May of 1819 in West Hills, New York. One of the most influential American poets in all of history had just been born. Though, as a baby, his limited grasp of language, writing, and any other skills that didn't involve blowing spit bubbles prevented him from being recognized as such. And we're not too sure about his skill with spit bubbles, either. Anyway, we're talking, of course, about Walt Whitman. Now, Whitman was one of eight surviving children in a struggling farm family. Despite their recent monetary trouble, the family had an abiding love of America and its ideals of freedom and democracy. Whitman's brothers had been named after great American heroes, so Walt grew up alongside George Washington Whitman, Thomas Jefferson Whitman, and Andrew Jackson Whitman. And so Whitman absorbed a great respect for his country from his father and an indomitable optimism from his mother. Unfortunately, that optimism would put him at odds with his father later in life as his father's failing business prospects led him to alcoholism and seeing wild conspiracies in everything. Throughout his youth, Whitman worked to help support his family, doing both office work and teaching students. But he was bored in the office and despised teaching. Eventually, though, he found success as a journalist, at least briefly. See, he was a sharp, volatile figure and often seen as a radical. He backed certain progressive ideas on women's rights and labor laws, but he also sharply criticized what he saw as an infatuation with European social ideas that were cutting at the heart of American values. After traveling to New Orleans for a time, he also became an outspoken critic of slavery. In short, he was polarizing and divisive, and his temperance of radical ideas with strong American traditions put him firmly in the middle ground. Thus, he alienated everyone. His tenure as a journalist over, he focused on writing poetry next. He adopted a style that was informed by classical sonnets and epics, but which he attempted to modernize. Gradually, he found his own voice, eventually doing away with the traditions of old poetry in favor of free verse. He didn't rely on heavily constructed meter or rhyme schemes, and he often relied on a first-person voice. When he self-published his first book of 12 poems titled Leaves of Grass, it didn't catch on initially but it was praised by the great author Ralph Waldo Emerson. Emerson wrote to Whitman to encourage him. The next year, this was 1856, he wrote a revised edition of Leaves of Grass that included 32 poems. And that caught the eye of other literary greats like Henry David Thoreau and Bronson Alcott. And just when it seemed like he might gain some recognition for his writing, things fell apart. Several members of his family struggled with substance abuse and mental illness. The American Civil War broke out and his brother George vanished while fighting for the Union side. Whitman left New York to search for him and found him being treated for wounds in Washington, D.C. There, Whitman obtained a job as a military paymaster. That brought him into regular contact with scores of wounded soldiers. And while the experience exhausted him physically and emotionally, it also inspired him to return to poetry. Soon thereafter, he published a new collection of poems about the Civil War called Drum Taps, which also included a reverential elegy for President Abraham Lincoln. About this time, Whitman also became close with a former Confederate soldier named Peter Doyle. 
The two secretly became romantically involved in spite of that era's taboos against homosexual relationships and, as Whitman's health faded, Doyle helped keep him healthy. Whitman was finally gaining renown for his literary work, and he published several new collections of poetry along with the fifth edition of Leaves of Grass. It wasn't until after a stroke crippled him that he finally gained worldwide recognition, and in 1892, he passed away. Sorry, we didn't mean to wander so far afield. We just wanted to mention that Whitman wrote a poem called Eidolons, which presented the whole of the heavens, the whole of the cosmos, as being teeming with spirit figures called Eidolons. They represented everything from nature spirits to artist muses to the beloved dead. And that was the impetus for the word Eidolon entering popular fiction as a sort of divine every spirit. But we weren't talking about Eidolons anyway. We were talking about pareidolia. That's a psychological phenomenon, where a person sees or hears a recognizable sound or image in something ordinary and random, like seeing faces in the clouds, or seeing an image of the Virgin Mary in an English muffin, or in perhaps the most famous example of pareidolia ever, seeing an image of Jesus Christ apparently permanently pressed into a funeral shroud. In 1354, a knight named Geoffroy de Charnay claimed to possess the burial garment, the shroud, of none other than THE Jesus Christ. And strangely enough, in the stains and discolorations in the cloth, one could see a sort of photographic negative of the Savior himself, magically preserved by the divine power that brought him back from the dead. We know about this knight and his claim because a bishop of the city of Troyes claimed in writing that it was a forgery and that he knew the artist who had painted the image into the cloth. But the strange shroud continued to be passed down through the de Charnay family until a granddaughter of the knight gave the shroud to a wealthy family known as the Savoys. At the time, the Savoys were a ducal house of the Holy Roman Empire, with substantial holdings in the Western Alps where modern France, Italy, and Switzerland come together. Now, the Savoy family has a long and complex history itself, it was founded by Count Humbert I in the mid-11th century when the family held the county of Savoy along the Rhone River south of Lake Geneva. If you're a gamer, we should point out that that's not the Lake Geneva you're thinking of. This one is in Europe, not Wisconsin. But we digress. Over the next few centuries, the Savoy family gradually expanded its holdings, and because a wily Savoy patriarch named Amadeus V adopted a French tradition called the Salic Law of Succession, the family was able to retain its holdings and avoid seeing its lands gradually chopped up and shared among various family successors. It's complicated, but essentially, Lex Salica, the Salic Law, requires all heritability to be traced through the direct male line. There's a bunch of other rules as well, and the Salic Laws of Succession were built up gradually over many years, mainly to keep dynasties intact and to prevent wars of succession that would rip apart countries. And duchies. Unfortunately, the moment a legitimate male heir fails to appear on schedule, or the legitimacy of said heir is called into question, or a non-heir manages to raise a big enough army, it's Game of Thrones time. But let's not get distracted by medieval dynastic law. The point is, the Savoy family adopted the French Salic Law so that their holdings were very secure, and that meant they became wealthy and held on to their wealth. It also meant they were stuck with whatever heir popped out to rule the family when the previous ruler was done ruling. And so, 
the family went into a decline in the mid-1500s under the control of some pretty weak rulers. And for about 25 years, starting in 1536, the territory was occupied by France. But because their lands and wealth remained intact, all they needed to do was to wait for a wilier patriarch to fix things. Which is what happened. Emmanuel Philbert carried out a very complicated political game in which he played the rulers of France against the Habsburg rulers of the Holy Roman Empire, and the Savoys got to stay independent. There followed a very long period of political complexity that we just can't go into right now. But what ended up happening was that there was a very old, fairly wealthy noble house called Savoy, which ruled one of many independent Italian states in a fractured Italy racked by political infighting. And it was one of the only states in Italy that was basically free of any foreign influence and had enough wealth to raise an army. And so, when members of the various Italian states started talking about maybe unifying into a country and standing against all this foreign influence and not fighting each other all the time, the Savoy family was able to basically make that happen. And that's how they ended up ruling Italy from the mid-19th century until the monarchy was overthrown and replaced with the Italian Republic in 1946. What does this have to do with the Shroud of Turin? Honestly, not a lot. I mean, it does explain how the Shroud came to reside in the city of Turin, which is where it earned its name. See, the Savoyard capital was moved to Turin in 1578, and they brought the Shroud with them. It had been in their previous capital, Chambéry, but it had been damaged in a fire, and the Shroud has resided in Turin since then, though it's rarely been publicly displayed. The one in the Museum of the Shroud is actually a replica. So what about that claim that the Shroud is a fake and was made by an artist in the 1300s? Well, in 1988, the Vatican wanted to authenticate the Shroud of Turin once and for all. See, there were a series of historical accounts that supposedly tracked the movements of the funeral cloth of Jesus Christ that validated some of the original claims. But the text of the Gospel suggested that Christ may not have been shrouded when he was laid to rest. And of course, there was that bishop who knew a guy. So the Vatican provided samples of the linen to three different laboratories, and they used a technique called radiocarbon dating to determine the age of the cloth. Now, radiocarbon dating is interesting. To understand how it works, you have to understand a bit about radioactivity. You know that everything is made of atoms. And you know that atoms are made of smaller particles called protons, neutrons, and electrons. The number of protons defines what that atom is. For example, if you have six protons, you have carbon. If you have one proton, you have hydrogen. If you have 26 protons, you have iron. The problem with protons is they all carry a positive electrical charge. And that means they repel each other. Now, there are other forces holding them together that can overcome the electrical charge issue. And because those forces are very strong, physicists call them the strong forces. Because physicists aren't as creative as gamers. The strong force is actually made up of the strong nuclear force and the color force, which is all much more complicated than we've just explained, but we really don't want to get into that right now. The point is, for those protons to stick together, they have to be spaced out properly. And that's where neutrons come in. They basically act as spacers. They allow the forces in the atom's nucleus to stay in balance. 
but it doesn't always take the same number of neutrons to do the job. You can have atoms with the same number of protons and different numbers of neutrons. For example, you can have carbon with six protons and six neutrons, and we call that carbon-12. Or you can have carbon with six protons and eight neutrons. We call that carbon-14. Those different versions of the same atom are called isotopes. It's just Greek, and it means the same type of thing. Now, carbon-12 holds together really well. All carbon wants to be carbon-12, but carbon-14, not so much. It tends to fall apart. It is unstable. The atom loses pieces and eventually becomes nitrogen. That's radioactive decay. And the radiation is neutrons or sometimes protons or sometimes just energy coming off an atom as it decays from an unstable state to a stable state. But here's the really neat thing about that radioactive decay process. It's very reliable. It happens like clockwork, at least on the large scale. Any radioactive atom has a 50% chance of undergoing its radioactive decay over a very specific period of time. If you take an atom of carbon-14 and wait about 5,700 years, there's a 50% chance it will have turned into nitrogen at some point. That means if you have a lot of carbon-14 and wait 5,700 years, half of it will turn into nitrogen over that period. That length of time, by the way, and it is different for every radioactive isotope, is called the half-life. Now, what can you do with all this? Well, if you know how much carbon-14 existed in the past compared to, say, carbon-12, and you look at something that has carbon in it and see how much carbon-14 and carbon-12 there is today you can figure out how much carbon-14 is missing. And that tells you how many half-lives have passed, or fractions thereof, which gives you a convenient way to determine how long ago something organic died. That is, when it stopped taking in new carbon from the environment. Like, for example, the plant fibers in a piece of cotton cloth. Turns out that the plants that died to make the cotton in the Shroud of Turin died sometime between 1250 and 1390 CE. Which means that shroud was made at least 1200 years after Jesus no longer needed a funeral cloth. Whoops. We should also note that we can use other radioactive elements to determine the age of other things. For example, uranium-238 has a half-life of roughly 4.5 billion years. And half the uranium-238 on Earth seems to have decayed into stable lead-206 these days. And that tells us how old the Earth is. Neat, huh? But wow, did we ever get distracted. We were talking about the psychological concept of pareidolia, which is the human propensity to see recognizable images or hear recognizable sounds in something that's otherwise random gibberish. And the success of the Shroud of Turin hoax shows just how strong that human propensity actually is, especially when it comes to faces. And that seems to be partly because we're hardwired to see faces. See, we've long known that the human brain is good at recognizing specific things. That is, 
A lot of our vision is driven not by what we see, but by what we recognize in what we see. It's a complex distinction, but an important one. Our brain's ability to see leans very heavily on its ability to fill in details based on familiar ideas. That's why it's so easy to overlook your girlfriend's new haircut. Because your brain reconstructs a lot of what it sees from what it remembers to save time. So you don't really see people so much as recognize them and your brain fills in the blanks. At least, that's what we keep telling her. If she would just read the research, we could get off the couch. All of this came together in 2009, when researchers stuck people inside a functional MRI scanner and watched their brains while they were shown images of things that looked like faces. You know, like electrical outlets or strange rocks on Mars. And a specific area of the brain kept lighting up. But it didn't light up for stuff that wasn't vaguely face-like. And this helped provide partial confirmation of a proposal by neuroscientists Justine Surgent and Nancy Canwisher in 1992 that a specific section of the brain, the fusiform face area as they called it, had evolved specifically to recognize faces very quickly, even while the rest of the brain was still trying to figure out just what the heck the eyes were looking at. And from an evolutionary perspective, being social animals, that makes perfect sense. Now, we should point out, that there is still a lot of ongoing research and debate about facial recognition and the functions of the fusiform face area. But there doesn't seem to be any doubt that people are hardwired to recognize faces and things. And that's why pareidolia is so prevalent. Well, that's half the story. Because pareidolia is actually a specific type of more general psychological phenomenon, which leads to things like Walt Whitman's dad's conspiracy theories and gamblers having crazy systems for things that are just as random as radioactive decay. And if we hadn't gotten so distracted by our flights of fancy, we might have discussed them. And we might have gotten around to our favorite example of pareidolia, the man in the moon, his friends the moon wolf, and the moon rabbits. Maybe next week, if we can stay focused. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by The Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. 